Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> oh, man, life, parenting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's pray. Father, we are delighted. And when we stop and think about it, we realize how privileged we are to gather with others who know you and who want to worship you. And, and that is the case with so many of us this morning. We know when we gather in a room like this, too, that we bring all of our stuff. Some of us are in places of real hurt and, and difficulty and stress. And others of us are rejoicing at what's going on in our lives and rejoicing in you. And we just kind of bring the whole gamut together when we meet like, like this as a community. But we come here, Father, because we believe that you will meet us and speak to us and teach us and, and, uh, and that you will inhabit our praises and that in the singing the words that sometimes we don't even feel, uh, but we, we know that there's truth in them and so that's why we do it. God, would you speak to us now in this part of our worship where we turn to listen to you. And um, just thank you, Father. Thank you for being among us this morning and for being who you are. And thank you for this team of people, Lord, that lead us in worship week after week after week and the way they serve you. And when they do that, they serve us. We give thanks to you for them. And all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a series, and uh, we're talking about the subject of community, and we're calling the series Life Together. It's a 100% ripoff of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called Life Together, and um, if you want to get a copy of that book, they're actually out in the lobby on the connect table. If you're a guest with us, you can pick one up for free. If you're a regular here, you've got to pay for it. That's how life works, but uh, we'd love to have you get that and, and read that uh, with us. It's just a phenomenal book. Uh, I was reading another book uh, a while ago, and it was also quite interesting, quite extraordinary. Not really necessarily a, a, a Christian book of sorts or what have you. It's called The Deep Down Dark. Some of you may remember the story back in uh, 2010 of the 33 Chilean miners who got trapped in a mine when there was a big mine cave-in. This giant stone uh, the size of the Empire State Building collapse from inside this mountain that was had been hollowed out through the mine and in the collapse of this giant giant uh, stone these 33 Chilean miners are trapped down in the uh, near the bottom of the mine and for 69 days they were trapped underground in the dark they had very 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 little food just a few cans of tuna fish and some wafers some uh, crackers and things of that nature uh, they didn't know whether they were going to live or die. And experts uh, that kind of surveyed the situation said, you know, we give them that. They didn't say this at the time, but afterwards they said, you know, we gave them about a 2% chance of coming out of that. No, almost no chance at all. And so here were these miners. They're staring at death, staring death right in the face. And they found themselves in that situation taking stock of their lives and kind of processing a lot of regrets that they had, uh, there was this one surprising moment that I read about when a guy asked this individual, they asked a guy named uh, Jose Hernandez, uh, and, I'm sorry, Jose Enrique, and uh, he, Jose Enrique was a, a follower of Jesus, and they asked him if he would pray for them. 
And so here they are in the bottom of this mine. And uh, Jose Enrique gets down on his knees, and some of the other guys follow suit. They get down on their knees too, others stand, whatever. And Jose prays. And uh, his prayer begins like this. He says, Lord, we aren't the best men, but Lord, have pity on us, he prays. That's kind of a scratchy way to, you know, start a prayer. Uh, But the guys are not offended. In fact, Jose actually goes on and he gets a lot more specific about some of their failures. He says, Lord, Victor Segovia knows he drinks too much. And he says, Victor Zamora is too quick to anger. And Pedro Cortez thinks about the poor father that he's been to his daughter. And the most amazing thing happens. Uh, Something is birthed in this moment of prayer and this time that they're spending together. There are thousands of feet underground staring death in the face in the deep down dark. And a kind of fellowship begins. And these 33 guys start to gather together every single day. And they have a, they have a tiny little meal, just a little bit of tuna fish, some crackers, and, and some oily water. The only water they've got to drink comes from a large tank, a huge tank, but it's the water they use to, uh, in the machines uh, underground. And so that's, there's oil in it. It's you know, awful stuff to drink, but at least it is some water. And so when they would gather and they, they would eat, they would also pray, and they would listen to the teachings of God's word. They asked Jose, in fact, they began to call him El Pastor, uh, and they would ask him to recount for them stories from the Bible. And then they would pray, and sometimes they would worship, and they even started to confess their sins to each other. One of them prays, God, forgive me for the way I have raised my voice in violence against my wife and against my children time and time and time again. And another one prays, God, forgive me for the way that I've abused my body with, with drugs and alcohol and, and in every which way imaginable. Forgive me, Father. And then those prayers kind of morph, and they begin actually to do confession one to another about the ways they've mistreated each other. You can imagine how rough these relationships are. These are minors, right? And they're, uh, they live a tough, tough life. And one of them prays, Lord, would you please forgive me for the way that I spoke about you? He's talking about you know, using the Lord's name in vain over and over and over. I mean, it was just part of his speech day in, day out. Another one prays, Lord, forgive the way I raised my hand uh, uh, against uh, Pedro. You know, there was actually some physical fighting that went on, and they start confessing this one to another. Uh, They confess that uh, some of them were being lazy. They weren't doing, they had chores like going to get the water from a lower level in the mine and bringing it up to the level where they were kind of uh, sequestered, had sequestered themselves. And they start literally confessing their sins one to another. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, And while that's going on, unknown to them, there's this rescue operation happening up above on the surface. There are these eight guys. They're part of a drill unit, and uh, they're going to try to drill down to rescue these miners, and they have some idea that there's a safety zone down there and that if they try to target that in the drilling, just maybe, just maybe uh, they will get through to these miners. And before they start the drilling, there's a guy who is the head of that drill team, and he decides they ought to pray, and so they do. And I like the way he puts it. He begins his prayer. He says, let's all put our trust in the skinny guy. And they're talking about the skinny guy on the cross. They're talking about Jesus. Let's put our trust in Jesus. And then another guy says, hey, boss, let's hold hands while we pray. Can you picture it? 
these uh, eight burly Chilean drillers, they're all holding hands, and they pray, and, and then they start to drill. And they drill, and they drill, and they drill, and they drill for days and for weeks. And they, they drill a hole way down. It's over 2,000 feet below the surface, and it's about eight inches in diameter. Nobody's going to come up through that hole. But they are uh, successful in drilling that hole, and uh, now with that eight-inch hole that, that makes contact with these trapped miners, they're able to get supplies and food and water and iPads to them, all the necessities of life. <laughs> and it's so interesting, with these iPads, the miners become aware of the fact that they have become an international phenomenon, an international story. And they start to realize there are people praying for them and people all over the world who are following the saga of whether or not they are going to be rescued. And then they start to realize, well, since we're becoming famous, we might also become rich. And uh, it's so interesting. The strangest thing happens. They're meeting together every day to confess their sins to each other and to pray and to worship and to hear stories from the Bible. Stops. And somehow the knowledge that they're going to be okay and that they're not desperate anymore, they're likely to get rescued, and the allure of fame and even possible wealth, which does happen. People start making contributions to a fund that's going to be divided up by these, by these miners and their families. And it just kind of undoes this remarkable community that they knew when they were suffering and when they were expecting to die. In some ways, the happiest part of the story when you read the book is also kind of the saddest part. In other words, when they come up out of the ground and they're actually saved, man, you can't believe the trouble that starts to unfold at that point in their lives. It's, it's pretty bad. In some ways, they were at their best when their life was at its hardest, when their life was really at its worst. And that's the deep down dark. It's the story of the deep down dark. And all of us know something about the deep down dark. We haven't been buried in mines or something of that nature. But we know something about the deep down dark. Or if you don't, you will. Let me put it that way. It's when you get to a place where you're stuck. It's when you get to a place where you realize human sufficiency, your human sufficiency isn't going to cut it. And deep down dark is that place where you realize, I need God. It's so interesting. Some of us are, are, as I said, reading this little book, Life Together. It's written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when he wrote it, he was living in Nazi-occupied Germany with this little underground group of guys. They were forming a seminary. And they discover this incredible fellowship in the midst of danger because what they were doing was illegal. They were taking risks every time they met. They were taking risks every time they would send one of these guys out to preach at a little gathering, a little collection of Christians who wanted to hear the word of God and and pray, and they were doing so against the orders of the Nazi government. But what they discovered in that whole process was an intensity of fellowship they never knew when they were safe. So interesting how that happens. We've seen this happen ourselves. Some guy binges for the 100th time on alcohol or maybe it's drugs or whatever. And in the process, he loses his family, he loses his job. His life is just coming apart at the seams. And he knows he's eventually going to kill himself if he stays on this path. But then he humbles himself and he stumbles into a, a meeting, like an AA meeting. And he finds that in the honesty and the rawness of that meeting where everybody says, Hi, my name is so and so. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I have sin in my life. I have brokenness 
in my life. And he discovers there a community that has the power to actually speak into his life and bring change. It's a power that he never knew when he was on his own. And, you know, I've had the privilege over the years to see this happen again and again and again. Somebody, somebody gets cancer and it feels like the bottom falls out of their life. Or somebody suffers a loss, somebody they love that passes away. Or somebody loses their job or somebody goes bankrupt or somebody's reputation gets shattered. Something about them becomes known publicly. Or somebody's heart gets ripped out because of a, a love loss. Or somebody struggles with a child. Somehow they find other people and there's a community that they discover that they never knew when everything seemed to be going okay. And that's the fellowship of the deep down dark. And I want to talk for a few moments about the fellowship of the deep down dark because we all need this fellowship. I want to make a few observations about the fellowship of the deep dark down. Is that okay? can't really stop me, can you? Here's the first one. In the fellowship of the deep down dark, number one, community or being connected is frankly non-optional. <laughs> it's non-optional. We think community is optional. Not in the fellowship of the deep down dark. Not when trouble comes. You can't just take it or leave it. You realize that without it you die. We live in a day where a lot of people are networked and they're, they're connected and they're linked in and this, that, and the other, and yet they are incredibly not connected, incredibly lonely, if you will. It was an observation made by Mother Teresa. She said that loneliness is like the leprosy of our age. But she didn't stop there. She also said it's lethal. She was discovering as she interacted with people that they were so lonely and it was just killing them. It was killing them emotionally. It was killing them physically. It was killing them spiritually. I read a, about a mouse. <laughs> this is in a research study. Um, if they put a mouse in a group of strangers... In other words, with other mice they didn't know. Uh, where there was not enough food or water, that little mouse's blood pressure went through the roof. Now, I have no idea how they made a cuff that small. But <laughs> somehow they measured the blood pressure, and this little mouse's blood pressure went through the roof. They took that same mouse, not making this up, took the same mouse, put it in exactly the same situation with brothers and sisters. I mean, mice from the same family, blood pressure didn't go up at all. And the point is, we're made for community. Apparently, mice are too, you know, from that study, I guess. But the fact is, we suffer in our lives if we lack community. There's a guy named Robert Putnam. You've probably heard of his name. He's a, he's a researcher that did the classic study on community in our generation. And he wrote it all up so that we could read about it in a book called Bowling Alone. You might have read it years ago. He found that isolated people, people not in community which he says is a trend in our day. You know, we are, we are people less and less connected in spite of the fact that we've got all these gadgets, but we're less and less connected, less and less in community. He says that people not in community are three times more likely to die than people who are embedded in deep communal relationships. That's just what the statistics bore out. And not just that. You know how we're all crazy about physical fitness? I mean, you know, you can see how I keep myself and... Uh, and just crazy about physical fitness. Well, here's how uh, important community is to your life. Putnam found that people who had bad health habits, things like you know smoking or bad eating habits, uh, poor exercise or no exercise at all, or maybe they drank too much, but who also had strong social communal ties, they lived significantly longer than the people that had great health habits. That's what he found. 
People that jog and work out and watch what they eat and stuff. People with poor habits but who had communal connections, they, they, they live longer. In other words, it's better for you to eat creme brulee with good friends than Brussels sprouts alone. That's the application of that principle. That's what he's saying. Putnam said, if you make no other changes, you don't start working out, you don't start eating better, but you just join a small group, a community, uh, you, you were, and, and if you were not in one before, statistically speaking, you cut the odds of your dying this next year in half. That's the statistics. Around here, this is why we call them life groups. If you want to live, get in a life group. I don't know how to emphasize this more, people. You're going to die or you need to get in a life group. And, you know, here's the thing. This is, of course, we can chuckle a little bit, but this is way more true, spiritually speaking. It's not just true about your body. It's it's even more true, spiritually speaking. Jesus knew this. If we look at the patterns and the rhythms of Jesus' life, Jesus had friends uh, in groups of three, Peter, Paul, James, or not Paul, Peter, James, and John. Uh, he, had, uh, he had relationships in a group of 12. He had relationships in a group of 72. He had relationships with 120. He knew the importance of relationship. He lived it out. If you want to have well-being with God, you're going to be hard-pressed to discover that well-being, to have a richness of spiritual foundation in your life, a richness of spiritual experience apart from community with others who are pursuing Jesus. The Bible is really clear about this. There's a New Testament book called Hebrews, and uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And this is what people do. Life gets hard or it gets bumpy or it gets difficult and we stop making, gathering with others to, to worship, gathering with others to connect in, in, in small groups. We stop making those things a priority. We make other things a priority. The writer of Hebrews says, again, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another. When and how? Well, in the context of gathering. Holly and I have been a part of a life group for the most part for the last 30 years. There have been a few times when uh, we weren't, but usually not for very long. There was an era in our lives some years ago, and it was one of those deep down dark eras. We were going through lots of personal pain and and struggle and so in our family, and, and I would often pray to God, God, if you don't work, I mean, if you don't show up in a big way, If you don't help me navigate this, I don't know how I'm going to get through it. We were in a life group at the time, and that little fellowship became for us the fellowship of the deep down dark. That's what it was to us. Where we could go and we could be honest, we could even get mad if that's what we were wrestling with, or we could be confused, and we could name it in really raw kinds of ways, and nobody judged us, and people would just say, you know, we love you, we're with you, we're praying for you, you know, how can we be helpful? You see, but let us encourage one another, the writer of Hebrews says. And that's what those people were doing with us. They were just there, listening and encouraging us. At times it felt like, you know, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know exactly what to do next. I don't know how to get 
through this. But slowly, with the encouragement of others, all of that stuff, uh, in the midst of it, God moved, God worked, God did a work in my heart and a work in, in Holly's and, and so. And I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine going through that era without the help of community. Here's the thing. If you want to be encouraged by people, you have to show up. You have to show up. You have to be in a community. But all too often, people just don't. They neglect this thing called community. And I I would ask you, are you neglecting this thing called community? I mean, this is one kind of community right here when we meet. This is an important kind of community, uh, but it's not the only kind of community that you need. You need something more intimate. You need something smaller. You need something where you can talk about what goes on in your life. You can look at Scripture together. You can pray for one another, and we don't get to do that, not in any intimate way here. It's so interesting. The number one excuse that people give for not being in community is, well, I I just don't have time. There's too much going on in my life. i got things i got to do. My plate's full. And people live with that excuse sometimes for years, and then one day a crisis hits. And they, they lose the marriage or they lose their health or they lose a job. They, they lose something. And all of a sudden they realize, man, I, I suddenly have a lot of time, but I don't have any community. And friends, I just want to say the deep down dark is coming. It's coming to all of us. And the time to create a community that will see you through the crisis is before the crisis comes. That's why Jesus put people in communities. That's why he would say, come follow me. Come join this community. It was important to Jesus. Well, that's point number one. Are you awake? I never know when we go to two services in this first service. It's always so quiet. I, I, you know. Second point. In the fellowship of the deep down dark, people are non-optimal. That's a politically correct way to say it. People are non-optimal. Uh, And this is just true about all of us. I kind of made this point last week. I thought I'd just make it again. You know, a lot of times we get into Christian community and we think that people are going to be great. They're going to be mature. They're going to be healthy. uh, They're going to agree with me. They're going to make me feel better about myself and so on. And then you actually get into Christian community and you find out everybody is non-optimal in that community. Just like you. Uh... In fact, if you want, you can do this little, you can look at the person next to you or somebody around you, just take a look at them. That person you're looking at is non-optimal. That is a non-optimal person, seriously. In fact, and we say this in various ways around here, but uh, we want to remind ourselves that the people out there, they're not perfect. And the, the person right here is not perfect. What good is it going to do us to pretend that we are? It's not going to do us any good at all. Uh, And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome one time, and he gave them a command, actually, and this is what he said. He said, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And, you know, how did Jesus accept me? Well, he, he accepted me as a very broken person, as a person who's always in process, right? As somebody who's flawed, as somebody who's messed up and... And again, why do we do this? Why would we look at each other and accept one another the way Jesus got? Why? Well, it's, it's in order, Paul says, to bring praise to God. That's why. 
Because when we actually accept one another, forgive one another, and continue to encourage one another, we are actually bringing praise to God. I mean, he loves it when we come into this room and we bring praise to God together and we sing together and so on. He loves that. That blesses God. But even more to the point, what really blesses God is when he sees us in community loving one another, forgiving one another, being gracious to one another, and demonstrating to the world that we are the followers of Jesus because of how we love. Um, When we experience community and and extend community to others, God is honored and God is glorified, and that is why we do it. But this glorious Christian community is always going to be messed up with messed up people who are sometimes hard for us to get along with. And I just can't, you know, I talk to people sometimes. Are you in a, in a group together? No, I'm, I'm not. Well, why not? Yeah, I, just, I don't really get much out of that. Well, what do you put into it? Um, yeah, and you have to go into it with eyes wide open. You know, if you're an introvert, there's going to be extroverts in that group that are going to annoy you, or vice versa. Uh, some people in that group are going to be dog people. Others are going to be much more like Jesus and be cat people. Some are neat and clean. Some are messy and dirty. Some are detail people. Some wouldn't know a detail, you know, to save their life. We're just all broken, and we're all different. Here's the deal. You get into community with people, and people get all these romanticized ideas about community, but in community you find out that doing life together can be hard. In fact, it can be impossible. In fact, it can only be done with the help of Jesus, right? There's somebody there who talks too much or somebody who never talks at all, and you're always wondering what they're thinking, or there's somebody with kind of a chip on their shoulder or somebody whose politics you can't stand or somebody whose theology seems a little shaky or quirky or weird or off or, or they get their feelings hurt too easily or too often. or you know you, you get the idea. And here's the deal. Christian community doesn't mean you get to be with people who are easy to be with. We talked about that last week. Who are the two that God put together, uh, that that Jesus put together in his 12, that particularly rubbed each other the wrong way? Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And again, we ask the question, why did God do that? Well, because he loved them. Why did Jesus put those two together? Because he loved them. And he knew the only way to rub off these these corners that were, that uh, were, were maturity need to happen in their lives was to put those two together. And the same is true for us. You know, um, Christian community doesn't mean we get to be with people that we just want to be with or like to be with or people who are like us. Christian community simply means you get to be with Jesus with people. Jesus says in Matthew 18, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That is a remarkable statement if you think about it. This is very cool. Uh, There's an old rabbinic saying. And Jesus was playing with that rabbinic saying when he made that statement in Matthew 18. The rabbinic saying goes this way. Wherever two or three people in Israel are gathered reading Torah, the divine presence is there. That's the rabbinic saying. But Jesus took that and said, well, understand what the Torah and the scriptures are pointing to has now arrived. It's me. And so whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, when you're gathered together in my name, recognize it's not just you and that person you're gathered with. It's you, that person, and me. We are gathered together. 
Jesus says, I am right there. I will help you figure out how to love that non-optimal person in your community. And guess what? I'm going to help that non-optimal person figure out how to love you, the non-optimal person. That's how it works. Last point. In the fellowship of the deep down dark, honesty is non-negotiable. This is maybe the hardest thing for us to get our hands around in the community of the church. Uh, And yet it ought to be especially true in the church. So many places in the world posture and pretend and, um, you know, we have to be confident, always have an air of confidence that we know what we're doing and where we're going and this, that, and the other. Otherwise, people won't follow. Otherwise, we won't get the job or keep the job or won't have the friendship or the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bonhoeffer writes this. This is scary stuff. He says, in confession one to another, the breakthrough to community takes place. That is so profound. He says, the mask you wear before men will do you no good before him, before Jesus, before God. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers, which we all do. He says, you can dare to be a sinner. He's he's actually quoting Martin Luther there when he says, you can dare to be a sinner. You know, we've talked about this before. We live in a world where we just wear masks. I think I've told this story before, but I, I think it's kind of funny. Uh, there's this guy who's desperate for a job, and he sees a want ad uh, at the zoo that they're hiring people, and he goes in and he applies, and, uh, and they, they tell him, you know, they do an interview, and they say, well, this job's a little unusual. Uh, let me tell you about it. Our gorilla passed away, and we don't have the money to replace him, so we're hiring someone to wear a gorilla suit. And, uh, and then you go into the gorilla's cage and you pretend to be the gorilla. And the guy thought, man, this is kind of humiliating, but I really need the money. And so he takes the job and puts the suit on and goes in the cage. And he starts jumping around and beating his chest and swinging on the vine. And people start to gather out front and they start watching him. They kind of are really enjoying this gorilla's uh, performance. And, and uh, he starts to become enthusiastic about his job, really starts to enjoy it. One day he's swinging on the vine and swings so far, so hard he He lands over in the other cage, the cage next to him, which happens to be the lion's cage. And in a moment, the lion pounces on him, has his paws right on his chest, and the guy panics and blows his cover. Help! Help! He starts shouting. And then the lion whispers, shut up, you idiot, or we'll both lose our job. (laughs) And the point is, there is a point. (laughs) You see, everybody in the zoo is wearing a mask. Everybody. Welcome to the zoo, you see. This is where we live, even right here in the church. Let's be honest. We struggle to take off masks. We do. We say, I'm okay. I'm doing great. Things are good. Failure doesn't bother me. I have a happy mask on or whatever. And, you know, sometimes that's all true. Great things are happening in our lives. Other times it's not. Sometimes at church we put on a holy mask, which is to say, you know, I don't struggle with stuff in my life. Sins I've, I've dealt with pretty much. I'm mostly sanctified. I was contacted this week by somebody that I have known for years. This is somebody I really love. I really appreciate it. Somebody in the ministry. They wanted me to come speak at an event in November, and the thought popped into my mind, you know, I'm more successful than this person because they want me to come be their speaker. 
And I just kind of mulled that over in my mind and enjoyed that for a bit. And then it occurred to me, if I heard another human being say out loud they were more important than somebody because they were asked to come speak someplace, I would think what a pathetic, twisted, deluded idiot that person is. But I thought it. I didn't say it out loud until now, but I thought it. It's just so interesting what I find, this, this darkness that's inside me. I constantly, always need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his grace to grow. I need you. I need, a, I need an environment and a context where I can share the truth about me and not be up here pretending. You know, some of the loneliest people that I have ever met on the planet are pastors. Because they live in a place where they allow people to believe that they don't struggle with the same stuff that everybody out there struggles with. That is bunk. That is not true. Um, This is so interesting. This is what Bonhoeffer writes about. He says, confess your faults to one another. This is what was happening in the deep down dark. They got to a place where they were so desperate, they actually thought, we're going to die. So we might as well be honest. What do we got to hide here? And they start becoming very, very honest. This is what happens at an AA meeting. It's actually, if there's any power at something like an AA meeting, it comes from that honesty of sharing and that acknowledgement that they can't fix it. They need a higher power, and indeed there's really only one higher power. That's Jesus, that's the Father, that's the Son. This is what Bonhoeffer found, and this is so profoundly true, this, uh, this quote. He says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship and common prayer and all their fellowship in service, uh, may still be left to their loneliness. So even though we gather like this, even though we get in small groups, it may be that we're still left to our loneliness. Well, why? Why is that? He says, the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, hey, we're all following Jesus, we're all devout, right? They do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. God, deliver us from pious fellowship. You see, so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners, except in the most general of ways. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. (laughs) God, deliver us from this. You see, in the fellowship of the deep down dark, which should be the fellowship of the church, things are supposed to get honest. God, forgive me for abusing my body with these things to which I'm addicted. God, forgive me for being so abusive to the people around me, getting so angry, being so... uh, Impatient. Forgive me for being such a bad dad. Forgive me for the addiction that I have to pornography. Forgive me, God, for being so proud, so arrogant. I always think I'm better than the next person. I mean, these are the kinds of sins that, frankly, live in the church under the surface. In the deep down dark, 
the recognition is that we are all just recovering sinners, always. And it's okay to say it. It's okay to admit it. Bonhoeffer's point is that as long as I'm hiding anything, I cannot be fully known. And I cannot be fully loved. Only if I'm fully known can I be fully loved. Now, here's the thing. Jesus does fully know you and me. And we need to live in that place where we are fully loved by Jesus. And out of that, with the confidence that he forgives us, it gives me a little bit of boldness in talking to you about me. I can pretend a little less, you see. And so one of the purposes of small groups here at Deer Creek Church of Life Groups is so that we can create the opportunity where through a slow process of development, you can actually meet one or two individuals where you might have the potential of being fully known someday, being able to really share and, and open up and developing the kind of relationship that could really bless your soul so that you can confess to God, yes, we always need to do that, but also confess to this brother or to this sister the truth about you. And not just in the general abstract way, yeah, I'm a sinner. If I say who, everybody here who's a sinner, raise your hand. I'm sure just about everybody will. A few of you aren't aware. But uh, I, the point is that at some place, at some time, with someone, we need to be concrete about our sin. Here's where I struggle. Here's what's holding me back. Here's what keeps me from being like or looking like Jesus. And here's the deal. You can only have a few of these people in your life. You can't have a dozen or two dozen or a hundred people like this in your life. It doesn't work that way. These are people that you know and have probably have known for some years. You've developed friendship with them. You've developed trust with them over time. You don't do this with strangers, right? You have to know this person or these people. And with this person, you share who you really are, your temptations, your fears, your stuff, the stuff that embarrasses you. Stuff that you would never tell others, but you can tell them. Because you see, to have a fully disclosing friend, somebody that you share your issues with, you now then have somebody, who, if that person knows Jesus, they're going to continue loving you. They're going to say, I, I forgive you. They're going to say, you know, there, there's hope for change. You can become more like Jesus, and, and I'm here with you to encourage you to uh, accountability and all those, all those kinds of things. See, they become a picture to you of the very love of Jesus. That's how rich and deep that is, and that's what the church is meant to be. That is the fellowship of the deep down dark.